welcome to the Extraordinary Moms Podcast. I'm Jessica Dalkus, your host, and every week I interview a different mom who shares their motherhood journey and the lessons that they've learned along the way. If I've learned anything from interviewing such a wide range of moms, it's that no two moms parent in the same way, and we should celebrate that and learn from one another. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast today, and if you like what you hear, please share the show with a friend. Hello, everybody. I am so honored to be sharing my guest story today. My guest is Heather Evans. She and her husband battled infertility for four years before finally becoming pregnant with boy-girl twins, Hannah and Gavin. This was their fourth round of IVF, and they used an egg donor. So she talks about some of the misconceptions with an egg donor and how she was finally able to have these babies in her own body. She went into premature labor, delivering them at 24 weeks, and what unfolded was nothing short of a miracle and the scariest time of their life. They spent four months in the NICU, seven weeks on a ventilator, both had brain bleeds. I mean, it's just every parent's worst nightmare, but to say she's a warrior mom is an absolute understatement. Her son was also diagnosed with cerebral palsy, and you would be just amazed to hear all the milestones he has met that his parents were unsure if he would ever meet. She's also a pelvic floor physical therapist, and so we talk about that a little bit. She is just a wealth of information, and her motherhood journey is inspiring, educational, and I know you're going to love getting to know Heather today. So let's get to my conversation with Heather Evans. All right, I'm so excited to be chatting with Heather Evans today. Hi, Heather. Hi. Some of my most favorite people in the world are named Heather. Really? Yes. I can count five on my hand that are like very special people to me in all parts of the country, all reasons, all reasons they entered my life. Five Heathers. That's awesome. Yes, I guess when I was born, um, my dad was actually really set on that name. Mm. So I, my dad actually named me that. I love it. That's so special. Well, maybe you'll be my sixth amazing Heather. That's perfect. Well, I'm so excited to chat with you. You reached out um, because you're a listener, which is so fun. Thanks for listening to the podcast. (laughs) Well, and like I was telling you before, I found your podcast at the beginning of the pandemic and I have just been binging it ever since. I love it so much. Thank you so much for all that you do. That is so sweet of you. You're so welcome. I've been doing it for six years now. So obviously there's plenty of episodes for you to go through. And I think You know, different podcasts have kind of different formats. Some I want to listen to every single week and others it's more like, oh, I'm interested in that topic or that resonates with me or I'm curious about that. And, you know, however this podcast fits into people's lives, I'm just glad it's it's there because sometimes it's like, oh, I totally relate to that person. And other times it's like, I don't, but I'm surprised how much I can learn when their story is different than my own. Do you find that as well? Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, well, I am have a very different motherhood journey than you today, as we're going to hear, and yet I just am so inspired by your journey, and I cannot wait to ask you some questions about some of the areas where you've become really an expert um, that I am not. So this is going to be so fun. So Heather, for people that don't know you yet, will you give a little background on yourself and your family? Sure. So my name is Heather Evans. Um, I've been married to my husband, Brian, for almost 13 years now. I have eight-year-old boy-girl twins, so my kiddos are Gavin and Hannah. And our path to um, having our family is one that I know a lot of women have struggled with. So we dealt with 
a lot of infertility issues, and then we dealt with, which I'm sure we're going to get into, a really long NICU stay, and um, and so all of those kinds of things. But anyway, so now um, I am also a pelvic floor physical therapist. I have done that um, for about 13 years or so as well. And so a pelvic floor physical therapist sees all kinds of um women, but I see a lot of women who are pregnant, a lot of postpartum women, and then women for things like pelvic pain, incontinence, bowel bladder issues, things like that. And then I live in Lee Summit, Missouri, which is right outside of Kansas City. Fantastic. Awesome. So when people go into motherhood, like many girls do, you kind of envision not only, you know, how many kids you want to have. For me, I watched Seventh Heaven growing up. I don't know if you were a fan of Seventh Heaven. But boy, girl, girl, boy, girl was like always the the dream scenario, just like the, the, what was it? Camdens, the Camdens. Like I thought like that's the ideal family. (laughs) And I thought it'll be easy to get pregnant. I'll be able to have my boy, girl, girl, boy, girl. Like that's just the way it's going to go, right? And I've talked to hundreds, hundreds of women, and to no surprise, that is never the way it goes. And for some, it is even greater than just not going the gender order that they thought. Hey everyone, I want to jump in and thank a show sponsor, and that is Baby Mori. I talked about them last week, and I'm still loving them, and in fact, Cooper is in one of their Baby Mori jammy sets right this second. If you're on the hunt for the softest baby clothes, Baby Mori is your place. They are crafted from soft, safe, and sustainable materials. And Baby Mori's aim is just to make parenting simpler through innovative designs such as the two-way zips and extendable sleeping bags. With my first few kids, I did not have a two-way zipper, and I can't tell you how much easier diaper changes are in the middle of the night when your zipper works both ways. All their products are designed to be the highest quality, long-lasting, worn and washed, passed down again and again, and I'm excited to pass them on to my nieces and nephews from here on out because this market is closed. (laughs) Baby Mori is giving our listeners an exclusive offer of 30% off site-wide so you can stock up on the softest clothing for your little one, your kid, your baby, whatever you're shopping for. Visit babymori.com, that's M-O-R-I, And get yourself a snuggly pair of jammies for that baby in your life. They're the most beautiful colors. My favorite is the pastel blue color. And boy, is it gorgeous. So go to babymori.com and use my code MOMS to get 30% off. Did you have any indication that growing your family biologically would be challenging for you? No, I had never had any indication of that. And so when my husband and I got married, we decided to start trying, you know, not preventing pretty much right away. Um, And then, you know, in the beginning, you're like, oh, it's okay. It's okay. And then it just continued to not happen. Mm -hmm. And so at about six months, I had talked to my OBGYN. And he said, well, let's go ahead and do a, cause my periods were normal. So it wasn't anything like that. Let's go ahead and do an exploratory lap- laparoscopic surgery to see if I might have anything like endometriosis. And when he did that, he didn't find endometriosis, but what he found was a large um, cyst that had basically wrapped itself all the way around my right ovary and right tube. And then a lot of scar tissue from where I, he 
thinks another cyst was probably present and then ruptured. So he actually had to go in and surgically remove basically my entire right side. So my right ovary and my right fallopian too. Was that and causing so, you pain before? How did that happen? How was that in your body and you did not know? That seems I really have no idea. They, can, they kept saying, are you sure there wasn't a time where you had really extreme pain? And I was thinking I probably would remember right. if that was the case. But I never had any other... Um, procedures or surgeries that could have led to any of that scar tissue. So they don't know for sure, but that was their best guess. But yeah, I had absolutely no, no pain, nothing like that. And so after that, they basically said, okay, you know, you have your left side and your body should adapt and you should be fine. But then, um, obviously it didn't. So that started us down the road with a reproductive endocrinologist. So a fertility specialist. And since I only had my left side, I was producing fewer eggs um, when we moved on to fertility treatments. And so that's pretty much what led us down our fertility treatment journey. So we ended up doing four IVF cycles and I had to have a second surgery at one point because I start, I got the same type of cyst on my other ovary, which was really mm-hmm. super scary because when they went in, they weren't sure if they were going to be able to spare, um, spare that ovary, mm-hmm. but they were. And so, um, and then halfway through, we had done two cycles, no success. And then we found a different clinic um, in St. Louis, so about four hours away. I didn't always match with beliefs with my other reproductive reproductive endocrinologist. So we transferred our care to St. Louis. Um, our third IVF cycle, unfortunately, was not successful. I just didn't produce enough eggs. Um, twice I didn't produce enough eggs to even have embryos to transfer. Mm. And then so finally we made a decision to use an egg donor. And our IVF cycle that used the egg donor was successful. And that's where we got Hannah and Gavin. Uh. It just literally gives me goosebumps thinking of oh. the possibilities that are now available in order to help families to achieve their dreams of growing yes. their family. Like what an absolute miracle that is. Yes. And I cannot imagine when, yeah, that uncertainty of not knowing when the other cyst was growing, how scary that must have been. And for it so many terrifying. families yes. going through failed IVF cycles, emotionally, financially, physically, it is beyond anything that I think unless you've been through it or have have watched somebody closely go through it, you can't possibly understand all that goes into it. What would you tell somebody who isn't familiar with this road? Maybe they just heard about a friend that's doing it and they want to support them. How how can we best paint that picture and what can we do to best support people going through that journey? And especially if it doesn't end well, or, and result in a baby, how can how can we be there or how can we communicate that love? I think the best thing is not necessarily to try to give advice, just to let that person know that you're there for them. So people will say a lot of different things. They'll say, oh, just relax and then you'll get pregnant. Or they'll say, oh, just adopt, which adoption is wonderful, but not really the thing to say in that moment to that person. Um, I had some really good best friends that they don't live anywhere near me, but we would talk from, you know, phone calls and um, they just let me know that they were there for them, for me. And then, you know, they sent me flowers after one of my IVF, um, failures and then they said one of my one of my good friends sent me a giant tub of blue raspberry laffy taffy because that's one of my favorite candies just showed up in at my door one day Mm -hmm. and it's just something to like let them know I'm here if you need to talk 
but I'm not going to give you any advice. I'm not going to ask you any questions you have to answer, but I'm here if you need me. Yeah, that is so, so good. And it's literally, literally the simplest things. And so many times as friends, we think we need to fix the problem, offer them something to take away the pain. And that's not really it. It's really just sitting with them in it, showing up, not retreating, even when you feel like you might say or do the wrong thing. Just showing up is really, truly the best thing. Absolutely. And then I had another really good friend who just happened to be going through it at the same time as me. Our stories were a little bit different, but they were similar enough that she and I could, you know, we could vent to each other, we could encourage each other. And then I ironically, she ended up becoming pregnant with twins too. And so then we were able to kind of experience twin pregnancy together and having twins together. So that was really, really a blessing in my case too. Yeah. Sometimes I've heard from people who are struggling to get pregnant that there's a lot of, um, I don't know, uneasiness around when other people are getting pregnant. Either it is legitimately sad and hard for, let's say, you to, you know, be fully happy or uh, fully supportive, or there, at least there's the impression or the guilt from the other person who does get pregnant that, oh, I'm so sorry that I'm pregnant and you're not. Did you ever feel those sentiments or how did you work through that or help other people to understand that you could be happy for them and sad for yourself as well? You know, that is super hard. I mean, there's not, I feel like that, that is just one of those things. I'm sorry. That is really, really difficult because I was at that age where a lot of people started to become pregnant. And when we, our whole journey took us four years. And so there were a few of my friends who actually had a baby and then became pregnant a second time during the journey. And that was really hard. And it wasn't that I wasn't happy for them. I was super, super happy for them, but I was just ready for my turn, my chance. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, it was just, I just tried to find joy in other things that I like to do, spend time with my husband, um, you know, work, different things like that. And just, I feel like you can definitely just feel two emotions at the same time. You can be really sad for yourself, but still be really happy for your friends. And so, um, you know, I would tell people, if you do become pregnant and you're and you have a friend who you know is struggling, maybe just pull them aside before you make the big social media announcement and tell them privately, but still tell them because they do still want to be involved and they do, they are still happy for you, but they may not want to hear about it on a giant, you know, Instagram post or Facebook post before they have a little bit of warning maybe. Yeah, that's great advice. That is really fantastic. My um, experience with my first was it took me 18 months to get pregnant. And thankfully, I only had to have minimal interventions, but I did have, have to have some. And yeah, it's, it's crazy when you think, oh, this is natural. It should just happen. I'm young. I'm healthy. I've never had pain. I've never had, mm -hmm. you know, all these things. And then when you're like, what, what is wrong with me? And, and I was starting mm -hmm. to kind of spiral into that, like, am I going to be able to have kids? Is this even going to happen for us? What's wrong? Just that uncertainty. And so I didn't want to not be happy for those that were getting pregnant around me. I wanted to kind of flip that. And so I started throwing baby showers for like, Everybody mm -hmm. that I'm like, do you need a baby shower? I'll host it for you. Here we go. And and really, it was just a way to feel involved in that joy and to offer that that love and that act of service to them to kind of take the spotlight off of my own sadness for that moment and and put it towards them. And it really did help me. Not that 
it didn't take away that longing for me, but it did help replace some of those sad feelings with some legitimate joy for others. And so I think we need to find our own way of doing that, like you're saying, finding other ways to, to make you happy in the middle of all that as well as as you also acknowledge, this is hard. This is hard. Right. I want my turn. Like you said, that was so beautiful. Right. Yeah. I think the baby shower idea is awesome. I think that's great. Yeah. So eventually, fourth round with an egg donor, finally you get pregnant. Yay. Right. And you probably think like yeah. these last four years have been the hardest of my life. I bet you were hoping for smooth sailing here on out. Right. And that's simply right. not what happened for you. Can you share what happened next? Sure. So I, once we got that positive pregnancy test, you follow up with your fertility doctor for a while and everything was fine. Um, when I went in for one of my early ultrasounds, they, you know, I had the positive test and the first ultrasound, they're like, um, you know, oh, we see the heartbeat and we had actually implanted two embryos. So we knew there was a higher chance of twins. And so we said, okay, that's awesome. And then we said, just, just one. And she goes, well, let me go back and look again. Oh, no, there's another one. And so then, of course, we were like, are you sure there's not any more? And <laughs> But there were two. And so we knew really early on that we were having twins. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really everything with my pregnancy was super, super easy, basically until the day it suddenly wasn't. And so I, I, I mean, I had a little nausea, but no major morning sickness. Um, everything was really, really great. And then... At about, you know, we went at our 20-week ultrasound. We found out there was a little boy and a little girl, and we were just mm-hmm. so, so excited. And it wasn't too long after that. It was about about 21 weeks. They did an ultrasound, one of the internal ultrasounds. It's called a tra- transvaginal ultrasound. And they noticed that my cervix was what they call funneling. So basically that means it was kind of dilating from um from more from the top Hmm. and it was basically shortening the cervix which is really not good because that can send you into premature labor and so the first thing they did and I felt fine I felt none nothing I felt none of those no symptoms with it at all and so they sent me home on bed rest and said we'll check you in a couple of days and I went back and they said okay we're holding steady we're going to send you home on bed rest again I went back a couple of days after that, and unfortunately, it, things had progressed. So I was already starting to dilate. I was already effaced, and I'm in the doctor's office. They come running in with a wheelchair. They tell me, don't push, which oh. I was trying to figure out, like, why would I push? I feel completely <laughs> fine. Oh, my gosh. And that's when they said, your twins may be coming today. And so that was at 22 weeks, five-day gestation. Um, now they are starting to be able to save some 22 weekers, but eight years ago, um, they, they really weren't doing much of that. Mm -hmm. So they took me across the street to the hospital and then got me checked in and got me on the monitors. Apparently I was having contractions. I just, for some reason, wasn't feeling them. And so, you know, they got me, they gave me some medicine, which they can give you for a few days to try to stop the labor. They gave me, um, steroid injections to kind of speed up the baby's lung development as fast as they could. And then basically said, and now we just wait, see what happens. And so my husband and I stayed up that night and we hadn't picked out names yet because it was only, (laughs) we were only 22 weeks pregnant. And so we said, 
we want them to have names. So no matter what happens, we want them to have names. And so we stayed up that night until we picked the perfect name for each baby. (laughs) And then we just, they gave me some sleeping medication and then we just went to sleep. And then I woke up the next morning and the babies were still there. So with the medications they were able to give me, we actually were able to put labor off until 24 weeks and one day. So back then in 2013, at the hospital I was at, which is a really, really good hospital, they didn't, they didn't um, try to intubate the babies at 22 weeks. At 23 weeks, they would try if the parents gave consent. Hmm. So at 23 weeks, when I was in the hospital on antepartum, they came in with a form and said, do you want us to try if you have your babies to intubate and save your babies? And we said, of course we do. And so we signed the forms. They stayed in there for another week, and then um, at 24 weeks, they came back, and they said, okay, at this point, we will try to save the babies, and we said, yes, please do that. Fantastic, right. We're all um, on the same page. Right, and what was crazy was this whole time, I felt completely fine. I felt no contractions. I felt no discomfort. I had no bleeding, nothing, but they were constantly monitoring for contractions and things like that. So the first time I felt anything, I woke up in the middle of the night at, and and I was on bed rest in the hospital this whole time. So, I mean, I was only allowed to get up, use the commode and come back. No showers, no trip, no walks around, nothing like that. Mm. So at 1.30 in the morning, when I was just barely 24 weeks in one day, that's the first time I had almost like period cramps. I would not even, they were contractions, but they're nothing like, I know women often feel with, with labor, they were, they were more like a strong period cramp. And that's when I did also notice I started to have some bleeding. And so, of course, we called the nurses and they rushed in and they called the, di- the doctor and sure enough, I was starting to dilate more. And so they had, they um, brought in this medicine called magnesium to try to, I think it tries to stop things, but it also protects the baby's brain. Mm. Um, you know, they were doing everything they could to stop it. Magnesium makes you feel absolutely terrible. It makes I have you feel heard... like your body's like on fire. And oh. so, you know, we had the room cranked down to as cold as it could go. Everyone else was freezing. I just felt like I was being engulfed in fire, but so, but none of it at that point actually worked. So the doctor said, I'm going to go check on a patient. I'm going to come back. If it's still the same way, we're going to go ahead and take you to an emergency C-section. They moved me to um, basically a room where if the baby, since they were so small at that point, if they were to what they said was slip out, they had warming tables ready. But they wanted me to wait until this to have the C-section. But again, I couldn't feel hardly anything except for now I was having a little bit of these cramps. Yeah. So the doctor came back said it's time for emergency C-section and took my husband and I in there and they said, we'll be able to lift up each baby and show you for just a couple seconds. And then we're going to have to whisk them off to the NICU right away. So they, they did a really good job preparing you for what was, what was going to be coming in such a crazy emergency situation. They all stayed so calm. They've done this thousands of times before they really, everything was very, very, I was informed of everything. Hmm. And so Hannah came out first. She was mm-hmm. baby A. Mm-hmm. They held her up for a second. She was actually blowing bubbles, which is something that I will <laughs> never forget. Um, of course, at 24 weeks, not able to breathe. So they held her up for a second, mm-hmm. whisked her away, and started intubation. And that's one thing. So I was in the C-section room, or the, the operating room, excuse me, and I had my whole team, and then each baby had a team. So they had two beds waiting, 
each baby had a doctor, a nurse practitioner, a nurse, and a respiratory therapist. So they had teams waiting to, to help them out right away. So then um, Gavin was baby B, and so he was transverse, so he was sideways. And so they had a little bit more trouble getting him out, but then they did, held him up for a second, and took him over to the isolate. And so at that point, Hannah was intubated, and they took her bed, and they were rushing her up to the NICU. And one thing I'll never forget is one of my, what came to become one of my very favorite nurses paused for just a second and she said congratulations mama and that's the first time it hit me that I I was a mom because everything was just a complete medical emergency it was all very you know everything was about surgery and about intubation and she actually just said congratulations and I I will never forget that Um, so they rushed Hannah up to the NICU they were still working on Gavin my husband's with me but he can kind of see so he's giving me updates what I learned later was they actually had to give him chest compressions. His heart was beating. It was just beating very, very slow. Mm. So they had to give him chest compressions, and they had to um, attempt multiple times to intubate him. But then they eventually got it, and they took him up to, to the NICU. So that was kind of their official birth story. Welcome to the world. <laughs> does it? How does it feel telling that? What is that? Does it feel like you're just an observer in somebody else's crazy life story? Or, like, do you have emotion around it? I mean, you told it so beautifully. Well, I think the, I think a lot has changed. So they're eight now. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in the moment, I was just living adrenaline minute to minute. You just did what you had to do. When they were around two... Um, that's when I really, I think, started to process a lot of the trauma. And because at that point I felt, it took that while, a while until I felt like they were medically kind of safe. And I think that's when my brain was kind of like, oh my gosh. (laughs) And even now, if I look back at pictures, I realize how scary it was. But since it's been eight years now, and since I have gone through the process of writing my books, which I know we'll talk about Mm -hmm. and different things, I think that's been really therapeutic to where, Now I do kind of feel like I can tell it kind of, I mean, I still feel the emotions, but I feel like I can tell it more of like an outsider knowing how the story turns out. Right. But if I told you the story when they were two, that might've been an entirely different telling of the story. Yeah. And I think it is so healthy to, to, to relive it in kind of a narrative form like that. So whether you're like talking to yourself in the mirror, whether you're writing a book, whether you're journaling about it, whether you're talking on a podcast, where, where, whether you're sharing to a friend, talking through it and not just one time, like going back over it can help kind of relieve some of that that trauma, I think, and uh-huh. and drawing or what, whatever it is, but just keeping it inside. And because it has to be so scary to revisit. Yes, you know how the story ends. And yes, you have eight-year-old twins that are thriving now. But regardless of what the outcome would have been, nobody needs to feel trapped by any event in their life, even one as traumatic as what you went through. Right, right. And I think since, you know, as the kids probably got to be about more more like toddlers, I got to know some other people. I think I had a couple times where a social worker had reached out from our hospital and said, um, you know, there's this mom who's going through something similar, or I would find them on like Facebook group or something like that. And at that point I was able to start like answering other moms questions and maybe helping them a little bit more. And that was, 
that helped me feel a lot better too. Yeah. One of my friends um, at church had babies and I forget, I'll have to, I'll fact check this after, but I forget at what week they were born, but I want to say it was 24, 25 weeks and they too, twin little girls were born pound, pound and a half size. Like, uh-huh. And they did everything to sustain those precious girls' lives and they did. And I will never forget going over to their house and I would kind of take we would take turns holding them just to give the parents any bit of respite because it's oxygen. It's, I mean, anytime they load into the car to go to a doctor's appointment, it is a production. And so any bit of help that we can like logistically give them, we did. And I'll just never forget. I mean, holding, I mean, it's just hard to even imagine this is a tiny human. Like they are perfectly wonderfully made. And yet like they're here for such a purpose. And it was just so life-changing to me to be able to be in their presence. And um, gosh, it just it's just incredible what they're able to do these days. So your babies about a pound and a half each, is that yes. right? And they Yes, they were a pound and a half. Yeah. And you know, they their eyes were not open yet. Oh. They um you know, and one thing that I looking back, there are little blessings within this. So for example, most people never get to see their babies try to like open their eyes for the first time. And we got Mm. to see that, which, you know, that was amidst a lot of other scary things, but that was actually really cool. Like I know what you look like when you were just first seeing the world. And then our hospital was really good. I know this kind of varies. They were both on ventilators. Um, but at our hospital, you could hold them for what they call kangaroo care, which is skin to skin holding. Um, my Hannah, I was able to hold, I believe she was about her it was her second or third day of life. It all gets a little blurry and it would take a team to move her to, I was the first one and then my husband got to do it the next day, but it would take at least in the beginning, it was at least one nurse and a respiratory therapist. And in the very early days, I think it was two nurses and a respiratory therapist to gather all the tubes and to hold the baby and they would lift her and put her on my chest and they that you don't hold them like you would more of a typical baby they kind of rest on your chest and then they are very sensitive to losing their warmth and so they're all bundled up and their ventilator tubes are, t- are taped down um and then you you don't move you don't rock them nothing like that you just hold them mm-hmm. and you might hold them for an hour or two hours and so that was really amazing too and then gavin he had a harder time with his oxygen. They were both on ventilators, but he had to be moved to what's called an oscillator, which is a higher powered ventilator. So I couldn't hold him um, while he was on that, but he came off of that to a regular ventilator at about a week. And then we were able to start holding him too. Mm. So that was really, really amazing. Yeah. And your son went on to have heart vessel surgery and I mean, it was a long road. How long were they in the NICU? So they were in the NICU for 122 days. So they came home one day short of their four month birthday. And they actually both came home on the same day, which is super rare to have twins in that long. But they just kind of got those last minute things like, you know, towards the end, it's, it's still the breathing and things, but towards the end, it's more about like the feeding and things like that. They kind of just figured it out together at the same time. So, um, so yeah, they got to come home at about four months. They did come home on oxygen and they came home on what they call apnea monitors, which is basically letting you know if they stop breathing. Um, and like, like your friend, 
we, well, first of all, we didn't go anywhere because we were, we didn't want them exposed to any germs, right. except for we did have um, doctor's appointments. Mm-hmm. And so for doctor's appointments, you're exactly right. We would load up both babies. We would load up both oxygen tanks, both apnea monitors. It was a hundred percent a two person job. My husband went with me to almost everything. And for some reason he couldn't, my mom stepped in. Um, there was just no way I could have, you know, done that by myself. But yeah, they, that's when, that's when they came home. So much work. And you're just so grateful to have them home and you'll do anything yeah. to get them home. But yes. it's also a, a new normal that you're having to adjust to. So you exactly. wrote your NICU story in your book, Learning to Breathe. And yes. then you also wrote a NICU mama survival guide. And so will you just give maybe three tips to anybody listening that has a baby in the NICU, is looking like they might have a baby in the NICU or has a friend, whatever. What are like three tips that you would give that you learned through that process? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I think the first thing I would say, and this starts out sounding a little cliche when you say take things day by day in the NICU, it is sometimes more like take things minute by minute. Mm. Um, because especially in the beginning, our babies both had one-to-one care. They were right next to each other and they each had their own nurse And they had these, you know, different alarms that would go off. And I feel like we were frantically running from one baby to the other baby. And day by day would have been just extreme. But Mm -hmm. it was just, you just do a minute at a time. And you just kind of do the next thing that you're supposed to do. Um, So that would be one thing. Number two is still take care of yourself. And in that time, that's probably not going to be like, okay, I'm going to go get an hour massage, or I mean, maybe it would be, and that's great. I wasn't a, I didn't want to leave them for that long, but, um, you know, taking a minute can be going down to the gift shop for a walk and coming back up. Mm Um, I know in our baby's rooms, you couldn't have like water or snacks or anything like that. So it could be, you know, going to the parent lounge and having a snack and drinking some water so that you, you know, you're not losing time away from your baby, but you have to, re-energize yourself or you cannot take care of those babies. Yeah. And my third would be, and this is something I didn't do. And this is what made me want to write my second book, which is the Nikki mama survival guide. Um, you have to remember you still had a pregnancy and you still had a delivery. And those are really big things. I think as a whole, as moms, Moms, once you have the baby, everything's focused on the baby, which is great, but we, we kind of lose focus on ourselves and what we just did, which was grow a human for nine to 10 months and then have a delivery. Mm-hmm. And I think even more so with Nikki moms, because there's so much more that we have in front of us. Um, so I just completely disregarded my postpartum journey and everything, which is crazy because my job is as a pelvic health physical therapist but I just didn't care. I was just so focused on the twins. And that's again, why I wanted to write that book because there are ways that you can take care of yourself and recover from your pregnancy and your delivery. And you can do it without ever leaving that NICU room. So it doesn't involve time away from your kiddo, but still think of the miraculous thing that your body did. Um, I know for me, I really struggled with it because I'd only carried them for six months. So I was kind of like, well, I didn't do nine to 10 months. I shouldn't be complaining about anything. Wow. But looking back, that's just crazy. That you is know? just like, crazy, Heather. Yeah, I but, know. Yeah, and so, wow. I, like I said, I've learned a lot over the past, you know, eight years. Like, that's still a huge thing 
amazing thing that your body did. And so I think that would be my, yeah, yeah my best thing. And yeah. the, a fourth one is you didn't ask for four, but a fourth one would be find yourself a tribe, find yourself, you know, a good person or a group of people who've been through something similar and then, um, kind of have them support you as well. That was a fabulous bonus one. I love it. Yes, that is so, so good. And like you said, like you even knew better, like in terms Mm -hmm. of the pelvic floor physical therapy and obviously going through major abdominal surgery to bring these babies into the world. And then you just jump into the caretaking for these little dependents that you have, you know, in the blink of an eye, like it's no wonder that you neglected yourself, but also when you know better and yet you're not able to do better, it's like imagine everybody else that doesn't know better. So let's talk right. about the pelvic floor physical therapy because I have heard more and more over the last few years. I recently had my fourth baby and I feel uh-huh. like there's more conversation around this type of care postpartum for women than there was definitely with my first 12 years ago, um, but still not enough. So who would benefit from pelvic floor physical therapy, how do you know if you would benefit and how do you even ask for this? That's perfect. So in our dream world, we would see every mom after she's had a baby. Um, Actually, France has already gone that way. So if you have a baby in France, you're automatically given um, pelvic floor physical therapy appointments after. So we would love to see every postpartum mom. And it's also not just about postpartum moms. So I see everyone from, I have a couple little kiddos that I see Hmm. all the way up to people approaching hundred. So, but then yes, a big group of that is pregnant and postpartum moms. And so a lot of the things that we have, um, that people report when they come in. So we have pelvic floor dysfunction. So those can be like bladder or bowel leakage, those can be pelvic organ prolapse, which is feeling like some pressure in that pelvic region where um, the organs may have descended a little bit. We see people for pain. So pelvic pain, pain that it can occur um, when they resume intercourse, pain that can occur around their C-section scar, different things like that. Um, we see a lot for diastasis, which is kind of, um, a sort of lengthening or separating of kind of like the middle of your six pack muscles, which Mm -hmm. is actually really pretty much everybody by the end of pregnancy. But then some people don't, they need a little help recovering. Um, then there's things like back pain, hip pain, um, and then just general, you know, just kind of getting your core and your pelvic floor some, you know, we need to make sure they're working like they're supposed to, making sure they're strong enough, making sure they're flexible enough, um, all of those things. And so, like I said, this can be anyone. This could be a mom whose kiddos are 12 years old. This could be a mom whose kiddos are 30 years old. But again, we do see a lot postpartum, of course, because of um, the recent pregnancy and delivery. Okay. So in terms of asking for this, it kind of, honestly, it depends on your state. So in most places, in some states, you can just go directly to a physical therapist without a doctor referral. In some states, you still have to have one. So I'm in Missouri. We are a little behind still. We can see you for the first day, but then we still have to have a doctor of some kind sign off on it. So you could talk to your OBGYN. You could talk to your primary care doctor. Um, your urologist, any of those doctors, and just say you want pelvic floor physical therapy. And um, a lot of the um, appointments are in clinic, of course, and then we also have virtual appointments. So we see a lot locally, and then we see a lot virtually from all over the world, even even beyond the United States. You can do virtual? 
Yes. Well, I mean, there's definitely benefits for doing in person, um, especially depending on what you're coming for, because, you know, we can actually do a hands on assessment. But doing a virtual appointment is 100% better than doing no appointment. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, we do offer that now. We kind of started it at the beginning of the pandemic, sort of when everything went virtual. And um, it's just grown from there. Yeah. And even if you just start with that and think like, oh, is this, this for me? And talking to an expert and realizing, oh, this could really benefit the symptoms that I'm having. And, and I do need the strengthening. Even just starting right. that way and then realizing, okay, yeah, I, it is worth investing in figuring out locally where you know I could I could go that is so so fascinating and so is there any tips that you could give somebody listening that had any of those symptoms that you were mentioning like I feel like I still I definitely I've had four babies all over eight and a half pounds up to Mm -hmm. almost 10 pounds like they're massive (laughs) four big boys and uh so definitely diastasis is something that I'm sure that I'm dealing with but again like I don't just go in to like check this out because I'm a mom and I'm busy. Right. And so it's ridiculous. And so is there anything that I can do to start helping myself today, even while I'm waiting for that appointment or things like that? For sure. So with things like, um, any abdominal pelvic floor issues, a lot of it is pressure. So if you think about like, if you later pick up one of your younger boys, Think about how you do that. Like, think about how, like, do you hold your breath when you do that? Because a lot of us will do that. Mm. And if you do that, when you hold your breath, that kind of closes off at your glottis and all that pressure is going to find your weakest link. So that could be your belly. If you have a diastasis, that could be your pelvic floor or prolapse. So one thing I get people doing right away is if there's a pressure. So like, for example, if you're going to lift your child, you always want to think about blowing out while you lift them. And it doesn't have to be a kid. This could be Mm. a laundry basket. This Mm -hmm. could be a bag of dog food. Lifting in general, you always want to blow out. So that would be my first thing. Um, My second thing is if you have scarring. So if you have, for example, like a C-section scar, it should move. So if you, now don't do this if you're still like eight weeks or less post-C-section, but if you're past that and everything's nice and healed, If you take your hands on your C-section scar and move it in all four directions, so kind of up, down, side to side, it should have good movement. A lot of them don't, and then that can cause a lot of other issues. And so then you would want to get into a clinician who could kind of help teach you how to sort of get that tissue moving. So that's another big one. And then I think my last one, so when we hear about the pelvic floor, people typically think Kegels or pelvic floor muscle contractions. Those can be good in certain situations, but you should not just automatically say, okay, I've had a baby. I'm going to do a million Kegels (laughs) because sometimes what happens, um, and again, this can be throughout the lifespan, but really common after having a baby is that those muscles can actually be too tense. Hmm. And then if you go to squeeze them by doing a million Kegels, you can actually make that worse. And so you want to make sure that your pelvic floor muscles can both relax all the way and contract all the way. And that can be super hard. And so that's where a visit to a pelvic health physical therapy, physical therapist could be key because sometimes you're like, I don't know, what's the difference? Then they can really help you assess what's going on and then guide you in the right direction. That is so helpful. Thank you. That is such a good place to start that. And it's just, it sounds like just the awareness of like, you know, when you're lifting up something, 
like, what are you doing? Like, how are you lifting? Are you holding your breath? Are you blowing out? Like, you don't even think about these things. So asking yourself the right questions, I think, is really a good place to start. So thank you for offering that. That's incredible. So we'll, we'll link to all your resources and everything at ExtraordinaryMomsPodcast.com, as I'm sure obviously people that are going through their NICU experience or have questions about pelvic floor stuff like you're just a wealth of information so this is so so amazing one of the things that always just inspires me so much and blows me away with people that go through really challenging things in their life obviously bringing your twins into the world in general was hard but then the traumatic birth the NICU stay and just the residual things and challenges that they continue to face and you continue to readjust your expectations, right? But the ability right. for mom, for moms and moms helping their children to adjust their expectations and to believe in themselves and realizing you're not limited by anything but what we put on ourselves and that ability to readjust that mindset. How would you say you have transformed your perspective be it in motherhood or just in life in general in terms of setting a vision for the future and being able to be flexible and to reimagine what will be? That is such a good question and it's funny because I was just talking to a coworker about this this morning. Um, so when I grew up and in my, like before I had my kids, I was just a, you know, go, go, go. I love school. I studied hard. I didn't struggle with it too much. I was just kind of go, go, go all the time. And, you know, we went through all of this and then my kids have reached school age. So they're in second grade now. And we do have some struggles with school. Like they are in the normal classroom, but um, both of them have ADHD and they're getting, you know, some special education services and one of them's getting tutoring. And, you know, they, I look at it more where I used to maybe look at things like, okay, you have to be the best at everything and you have to be the top of everything. And I wonder if I would have been like that with my kids too. Now I look back and even as we're getting this information saying, you know, we're a little concerned, Hannah or Gavin is, you know, behind where we want them to be. I'm looking at it like, but oh my gosh, look how much farther than they were six months ago. Look Mm -hmm. how much farther than they were a year ago. So I feel like my perspective has just completely changed. Instead of having to be the best and having to be first, it's like just the progress in general. Um, I I know one of your previous guests, I can't remember which one, had said something about inch stones. Sometimes it's the inch stones, you know, sometimes it's, just, okay, you can finally, you know, spell this word or, you know, it doesn't have to be major and it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be caught up with your classmates. As long as you are trying hard and you are happy and you are making progress, then that's all I really care about. And I don't stress out about those things anymore. Yeah. And we don't get to predetermine what that progress needs to look like, right? So it may not be writing the word, maybe even holding the pencil. And that's like such a like mind-blowing thing that maybe a doctor early on would have said, you know, so-and-so would never have that ability to hold a pencil. Mm -hmm. Look at them, right? Yes. Or be social or things. So I just think that is so incredible and really that perspective can just totally transform our entire life right and and when we're willing to accept that and accept our kids as who they are they know that they know they're accepted and loved unconditionally and then they will thrive and you are the absolute perfect parent for them even when we don't do things perfectly 
Yeah. Oh, Heather, you're so amazing. Well, this has been so wonderful talking with you. I'm so excited for what the future holds for your kids. I mean, coming from a a pound and a half, chest compressions at birth, and now your son was diagnosed with cerebral palsy, but he walks and runs. Yes, he does. He walks, he runs, he is working on swimming. What? Um, he wore ankle braces when he was little, but we've gotten past that now. He's had well, a couple of big surgeries, but we're hoping that that's it. It's yeah. been a few years. So we're hoping that that's it. And I mean, you probably, I mean, you would probably notice that maybe he's just a little slower at running than some of the other kids, but he just gets out there and does everything that the other kids, everything they do. So, so cool. Yeah, it's been a journey and it continues to be a journey, but it has been a pretty amazing ride for yeah. sure. Well, Heather, you've you've been a listener, so you know my final question, and now you get to answer. Heather, what would you tell your pre-motherhood self? I have gone around and around about this, Mm because like you said, I did know it was coming. Um, And I think what I'm going to say is just so simple, and I know it's been said before, but you can do this. Like in those dark nights when you aren't sure what's going to happen or how it's going to go, just know that you are a strong mom. These were meant to be your babies and that you can do whatever they need. That's so good. Heather, thank you so, so much. And I'm just so inspired by you and cannot wait to follow along and see what else your kids accomplish in life. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I am so honored that Heather wanted to share her story with us on the podcast. She is truly amazing as you can see and I know that you're going to want to follow along with her kids journey online everything will be linked at extraordinarymomspodcast.com also if you have a baby in the NICU or you know somebody that is maybe buying that NICU survival guide would be a great gift and offering to support somebody through that journey when you feel so helpless yourself totally amazing If you don't already follow me on Instagram, you can do that at jessicadahlquist3. And like I said, everything's linked at extraordinarymomspodcast.com. Thanks again for tuning into the podcast, and we'll see you next week for another episode with another Extraordinary Mom. Bye.